Hello, and welcome to The Ballpark, a podcast from the U.S. Center at the London School of Economics. I'm Sophie Donselman. We assembled here today are issuing a new decree to be heard in every city, in every foreign capital, and in every hall of power. And that is U.S. President Donald J. Trump. From this day forward, a new vision will govern our land. Speaking at his inauguration in late January 2017, President Trump laid out his presidential doctrine. From this day forward, it's going to be only America first. America first. And so this episode, we're taking a look at how this prioritization of America first will impact foreign policy. What will America's presence and actions in the world look like during the Trump era? America first is at the heart of Donald Trump's domestic policies. And so how does this philosophy manifest itself in his foreign policy? Well, I think America first resonates uh, politically because it hails back to the 1930s and is associated with a, a hard-edged isolationism. That's Professor Charles Kupchin. Uh, name is Charles Kupchin. I am a professor of international affairs at Georgetown University and a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. I actually think that his foreign policy is more America-only than America first, because all presidents have effectively adopted an America first posture, i.e., I look out primarily and in the first instance for the citizens of the United States, but they have defined the interests of the citizens of the United States broadly. Uh, That is to say that if Germany prospers, if Japan prospers, it is in the interests of the United States because a prosperous country is a stable country and the interests of the United States are instability and trade and democracy. President Trump seems to view the world in zero-sum terms, which is why I think it's more America only than America first. And perhaps it's because he, he's, a, he's a businessman, and in business, if Dell is uh, selling lots of laptops, Lenovo is not. Uh, and so it is kind of zero-sum, but that's not the way international politics works. And I do fear that if, if he goes out and uh, says, okay, I'm going to make sure that the American economy prospers and tough luck for everyone else, we're going back to, to the 1930s and protectionist barriers are going to come up. If he defines security solely in terms of America's territorial safety, uh, and doesn't look carefully at, at broader threats, whether it's cyber or threats to allies or the, the system of collective defense that we have, have erected, uh, then we're going to be in trouble. And crucial elements of these systems are, of course, our allies. Starting during his campaign and continuing into his first 100 days in the White House, President Trump has consistently called for America's NATO counterparts to do more and shoulder more of the defense costs. On the question of, uh, of allies here, I, uh, uh, 
am in alignment with with President Trump in the sense that there's no question that that U.S. allies have been ri- free riding on American defense. Uh, NATO calls for two percent spending levels, two percent of GDP. Uh, and very few members meet that. The United Kingdom is actually one that does. But other major players, including Germany, are much closer to 1% than they are 2%. And so I think it's, it's right for, for, the, uh, for the president to say, come on, guys, uh, we're in this together. Why aren't you holding, uh, holding or shouldering your fair share? Uh, I think he has gone about it in a less than tactful way. Uh, when you uh, when you say, hey, you know, if you don't spend what you're supposed to, we may not defend you, that's a threat. Uh, I think the, pre- the way President Obama went about it was arm-twisting and encouragement, uh, not calling into question whether NATO is obsolete because uh, uh, of, the, of the lack of allied defense spending. So I think he, in substance, he's making the right claim, the right uh, charge, but uh, I think he could go about it in a more tactful way. Along the lines of defense spending, President Trump not only thinks other alliance members should do more, but that the U.S. should increase defense spending. In recent years, 54% of all federal discretionary spending has gone to the military. That's a total of $598.5 billion. So why does President Trump want to spend more on defense? I think that, uh, that President Trump feels that uh, the strength of the American uh, military, let's, let's raw power perhaps is the best way to put it, is necessary to restore American strength uh, which he feels has been uh, tarnished or devalued uh, over the last, uh, I'm guessing, two presidencies, probably Bush and Obama, uh, and that he wants to focus less on uh, wars of the sort that we have been fighting, Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, Syria, uh, and focus more on the big-ticket items, great powers. Uh, and that's at least his justification for a sizable increase in in the military. But what are our allies making of all this? You know, I think everybody right now is waiting, uh, is taking stock, is hoping that the president tax to the center, and that may that may happen. Uh, the The address that he gave before Congress was a, a more moderate take on domestic policy and foreign policy. He came out uh, and said explicitly that uh, he stands solidly behind NATO, whereas before he had said that he uh, has questions about about the alliance. So the president is capable of taking a more traditional centrist approach to foreign policy, but it's way too soon to know where he will land. He has around him uh, a very impressive team. Uh, If you take uh, McMaster, the National Security Advisor, Tillerson, the Secretary of State, Mattis, Secretary of Defense, uh, there are real professionals there who bring expertise and gravitas to the table. Hopefully he will listen to them. Uh, And again, we, we don't know how the process is or is not working. 
so I think that allies are in a wait-and-see mode, but I do think that in their communications with the president and with the president's advisors, they should make clear that they are going to stand up for traditional positions and position, uh, traditional values, uh, and that it's important to speak truth to power, uh, especially at this important time in the evolution of the Trump presidency. Many of our alliances and policies have a deep, entrenched history, yet there are also many changing dynamics in this day and age. So how much of this is specific to the Trump era, and how much of this is produced by trends in American foreign policies that have been developing for years? It's, it's very difficult to say. Uh, there's no question that there has been a secular change in the United States in that the bipartisan center that was for many, many years the foundation of American foreign policy, that center has gone. There is no longer a, um, a solid block of moderate and centrist Democrats and moderate and centrist Republicans that stand behind the president on foreign policy. Uh, that's not new to Trump. That, that is, is a, a development that really goes back to the, to the early to mid-1990s. The second uh, change has been that I think the, the uh, tenor or character of American internationalism has changed. And it's, it's something that President Obama began, what you might call a, a policy of retrenchment. He tried uh, as hard as he could to detach the United States from, well, let's call them wars of choice, and to downsize the commitment in Afghanistan, to get out uh, of Iraq, uh, to, to substantially reduce America's footprint militarily. He had a very hard time doing it because the Middle East wouldn't let go. Uh, and uh, especially after ISIL, the Islamic State came along and took major chunks of Syria and Iraq, uh, the president made the choice to go back in. I think that, that Trump would like to follow in the footsteps of Obama and retrench. The question is, might he go too far? Rather than selective engagement, might we see something that looks more like neo-isolationism? Uh, too soon to tell. The other issue that I think is important to keep an eye on is even if Trump is a blip, and I actually think he will be, because if you look at, at the American electorate and you look at American demographics, his constituency, his voter base is in decline. In fact, one of the reasons they're angry uh, at, uh, and, uh, and populist is that they are in decline. They represent the America that was not the America that is becoming. Uh, and they don't like that. And that's why they wanted a president who, to some extent, promised to turn back the clock, turn back the economy to the 1950s when the U.S. was a manufacturing powerhouse, turn back the clock to a whiter America uh, with fewer immigrants. Uh, and so uh, it's for those reasons that I think in the long run Trump represents a detour and not the future. But uh, if even if he's a blip, how much damage will he do? Uh, President Bush was in office for eight years. 
and he left office with the Middle East in flames and the global economy on the verge of a meltdown. Uh, and so that's just an example of what happens when you have a president who makes some wrong decisions. Uh, so I, I, f I worry that even if Trump lasts only four years or maybe even less than four years, he could still do a lot of damage. So many believe that some of this damage will come from President Trump's advocacy of neo-isolationism. But how much will President Trump have to engage with global powers such as China and Russia? Must the American president engage with these countries, even if it's not part of his doctrine? Yes. I mean, he... He's going to have to deal with, with Russia and with China because they are uh, major players. Uh, after, after the United States, I think you could say that they're, they're the next two most significant players on the global stage, uh, although the EU, and, um, it, which is itself a separate conversation, is also uh, a major player. Uh, on Russia... The uh, Trump administration has been behaving quite strangely in that the Russians, whether it's in Syria or Ukraine uh, or interfering in the U.S. election or meddling in uh, the U.K. during the Brexit vote, Germany and France in their upcoming elections, Montenegro in their bid to join NATO, they're all over. Uh, they're all over the, the, uh, the liberal democracies. But despite this behavior, President Trump has said he's, he wants to carve out a, a good working relationship with Putin. Uh, it, it's hard to know where he's coming from. Uh, and uh, there is a, a, an investigation, obviously, that is continuing into the, the linkages between the Trump campaign and the Russians before, before he elected. We don't know what will come out of that investigation. I'm guessing that in the end of the day, Trump will move closer to Russia on Syria, uh, and that's because the military balance has changed with the fall of Aleppo, and it, it may make sense for the U.S. to team up with Turkey and Russia, and perhaps even one would have to hold one's nose, the Syrian regime, to bring that civil war to to an end. It's hard for me to see Trump working closely with Putin beyond Syria because the, the, the differences of interest are so profound. But I do think that in the here and now, and by that I mean Trump's presidency, the next two, three, four years, Russia is probably uh, the the most problematic actor when it comes to global politics because Russia is actively engaged in an effort to undermine the West. China is the bigger fish if you move beyond the Trump presidency Okay, and say, okay, in the next 10, 15 years, what's the country we really have to worry about? There, I think the answer is China. And that's because Russia is a declining power. Its best days are behind it demographically, economically. They've never really made the transition from an economy that is heavily dependent upon fossil fuels. China, on the other hand, is on an upward trajectory. It's flexing its muscles. It's building its military. 
And in that respect, if there is a, a kind of hegemonic transition ahead of us uh, in which uh, the United States will be uh, hard-pressed to figure out what to do from a strategic perspective, I think it, it is in the case of, of China and its emerging appetite for greater sway over the Western Pacific. Given all of this, how should academics and researchers analyze President Trump? In the years that followed Trump's presidency, we'll look back at the scholarship and analysis produced by academics during this era. So do they have the tools to analyze Trumpian foreign policy? How should they proceed? Well, I, you know, I think that um, we, we need to continue to apply traditional models and uh, analytic perspectives to to deal with Trump, uh, and, and in some ways, it's 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 especially important that we do so, because I think part of of Trump's political brand is to try to disrupt and to disorient, and to make us play his game, uh, and I think that would be a mistake. Uh, he constantly tries to change the conversation uh, in the sense that, you know, you wake up in the morning and there's some new tweet that causes the media to go chase after some new piece of information. Uh, and in that way, he gets – he somehow is able to control the public narrative and what the media is focusing on. Uh, perhaps to knock us off our, our traditional modes of, of analysis and evaluation. But I think we have to hold President Trump to uh, the same standards as, as any other president uh, and to try to stay balanced and focused on the big, the big issues, even as Mr. Chaos uh, attempts to uh, to kind of turn the system upside down. I think in the end of the day, we can't we can't play that game. Let's dive into these issues in more detail. Now I'm joined by my co-host Chris Gilson and Emmanuel Blanc, a PhD student in the International Relations Department here at LSE. Emmanuel specializes in EU foreign policy and the practice of dialogue in transatlantic relations. Emmanuel, would you mind telling us a bit about your PhD research and what you found? Yes, sure. So my research deals with the EU foreign policy, and as you said, more specifically with the multiple transatlantic dialogues that have been institutionalized between the two players over the years. And um, interestingly enough, despite the salience of this practice, there has been a lack of research on the discursive dynamics um, of these numerous deliberative spaces. On the one hand, these dialogues are either very uh, rapidly dismissed as cheap talking shops, or on the contrary, are described as venue in which the EU exerts its persuasive power. So I really wanted to understand why the EU was so keen on promoting and conducting all these dialogues with multiple actors. And what I found is that um, the dialogical interaction is a way for the EU to seek and get recognition for its identity as an international important player. So let's start going back to the Kupchin interview with an idea we've heard from Donald Trump that Charles Kupchin agreed with. President Trump has accused allies of free riding on America's defense spending, especially in NATO. What do you think of that claim? Well, on NATO, I largely agree with Charles Kupchan, but I think that we need to add more nuances to the debate. 
Um, first, this debate over burden sharing is not a new idea at all. Um, the transatlantic disagreements on how to split NATO's bills are as old as the, the alliance itself. Um, but this is the intensity of naming and shaming allies that has reached unprecedented level, I think. Um, just uh, in March, in the last meeting uh, between Angela Merkel and Donald Trump in Washington, uh, the president not only asked the European allies to pay their due share, but also to compensate the US for its past uh, contributions. Um, and secondly, I think that while the demands to have um, fairer burden sharing are absolutely legitimate, it is important to keep in mind that there are different ways to evaluate burden sharing. The most notorious one being the 2% uh, GDP to defense. But an alternative measurement looks at the actual participation in NATO operations and contribution in terms of personal and hardware. And so I think that we should take more seriously this dimension of burden sharing into account. Um, and this is also the idea that uh, has just been raised by the German ministry, Minister of Defense von der Leyen just um, a few days ago. I'd like to pick up that point, Emmanuel. You talked about the the idea of burden sharing, Emmanuel, in terms of the two percent target. I think is actually not very helpful in the in the world of Donald Trump. He's managed to pick this target as something that he can uh, prove to his base that he's going out and and protecting America's interests by saying that actually all you countries are free riding on us. Now, as you said, there are lots of ways that NATO members can contribute to the alliance in terms of burden sharing. You talked about hardware, infrastructure, uh, troop support, and things like that. They're in terms of the, they're the bread and butter of what the NATO alliance is about. And if you look at smaller countries in Europe, you know how easy is it for, say, Belgium to, to put in 2% of its defense, uh, GDP into defense? What, what is 2% of Belgium's GDP on defense actually going to buy you? I would argue not very much. And until the EU has some kind of wider scale uh, defense force, or even as they talk about an EU army, that's, you're not going to get the kind of economies of scale with those smaller countries. So I think if we can move away from this idea of 2%, I don't know what the actual amount would be. I think that would be better. And it would mean that sort of uh, people like Trump who like to, to make a name for themselves in the media and Twitter wouldn't have something to pick up on. So on the note of discussing numbers and figures, another number that came up quite a lot was zero in the sense of zero sum. Um, Charles Kupchin suggested that Trump's America First policy was really just an American-only policy. Um, personally, I think Trump's motto is just kind of America. I don't know if he's taken it beyond only or first. Um, but Emmanuel, what did you think about that, if it really has to be such a zero-sum game? Um, well, I think that the description made by Kupchan on the zero-sum game vision of Donald Trump is quite accurate. And this goes together with the rhetoric he often uses, dividing the world between losers and winners. In other words, uh, you can only gain if someone else is uh, failing. And it looks like he adopted this perspective regarding um, the trade relations with the EU as well. And this has prompted Federica Mogherini, the high representative of the EU for foreign affairs, and many other EU representatives to restate the obvious uh, in terms of how beneficial the transatlantic economic cooperation actually is for the US as well. And so they really try to make the case for the possibility of win-win uh, situations. So for example, in economic terms, um, the EU high representative likes to remind at any possible occasion that the uh, that 80% of foreign investments in the US 
come from Europe and that thousands of jobs in the United States are also dependent on uh, European investment. And this is something that is also quite new. Uh, before that, there was no need to um, emphasize these uh, facts. Do you think Trump really understands those figures that you've listed? Or does he perhaps, as Kupchin suggested, understand these things, but he's in this act of trying to deceive and distract us to get other things done? Well, I need to think about that. Oh, sorry, sorry. I didn't mean to throw you <laughs> no, off. It's a good, no, no, it's a good... Uh, um, but that, that's what Kupchin was saying. Like, oh, maybe he's not as simple-minded as he seems, that he's trying yeah, to distract us. Yeah. So you're saying you think Trump is actually going, is the sort of, it's, well, this is all for politics. He, he, well, I mean, he, he isn't worried about economic, how the state of the economy. These, these figures are quite shocking. I mean, yeah, I didn't know this. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think the average American, or at least the sort of maybe, I'm, including to the group, the average Trump voter doesn't get a sense that America is reliant on foreign mm. trade. Their sense that we're a great power, we need to make things at home. We don't need foreigners. We don't need immigrants coming in. We don't need foreign goods any kind of in, in economic interaction is just going to undermine American jobs. And then you have Trump really picking up on this economic nativism, scrapping the the, uh, the TTIP trade agreement, pushing this America-only idea, as uh, Kupchin said. And so I think it, this really is playing to the kind of economic nationalism of his voters. But then, as Kupchin also suggested, this view just takes us to the opposite end of the pendulum and just goes way too far and perhaps if you retrench so severely, you go into neo-isolationism. Sure, sure. But then at what point does all that neo-isolationism hurt the U.S. economically and will then filter down to his voters? So the question, I think, is will Trump be able to sell this neo-isolationism as a win? And if he can, he's, he's fine. You know, can he blame, say, the, you know, the economy does start to do, do worse because they're cutting off trade with the EU or they're... You know, they're promoting America first policies. If people in the South and people who are in Trump's base are losing more jobs and making and their lives are more difficult, who will they blame that on? I think that's the really big question going forward. Well, perhaps the fact, I'm not quite sure about the numbers, but perhaps the fact that arguing for protectionist uh, policies uh, in order to improve the situation of its voters, of his voters, uh, is, mis- is misleading uh, in the sense that the economic um, degrading situation is mostly due also to the automation uh, processes and um, and so the economy is not as it was uh, a few decades ago and so he might need to come to terms also with the reality in this sense but definitely uh, the TTIP uh, negotiations which uh, really um, were far-reaching because we are talking about the most comprehensive and ambitious trade agreements between uh, the EU and Europe. This has been uh, suspended. Uh, he has also withdrawn from the uh, TPP agreement. So clearly he's taking steps into more uh, protectionist policies. The reality might indeed uh, prove the contrary and he might reverse uh, the course of his policy if he sees that it doesn't he doesn't manage to sell these to his um, supporters. Speaking of trajectories, um, a quote that I thought was really interesting from Kupchin's interview was that he said, in the long run, Trump represents a detour, not a future. So similar to what you've just said, do you think that his kind of volatility, that he might go one way and change his mind, um, 
do you think what he's already done will affect the future or do you think it can easily be undone? Well, this depends really on the uh, field of policy, the area of policy that we are talking about. Um, What I've been thinking of is, for example, in terms of soft power, I think that the damage has already been done. Um, Clearly, with the um, nationalist uh, rhetoric of Donald Trump, the US has already lost a big deal of attraction. And um, it's enough to look at the consequences of the executive order banning travel from six predominantly Muslim countries uh, to see that. And this includes, of course, a ban for students and scholars uh, with valid uh, visas to the US. And so recent studies have already suggested that the rhetoric of the the policy of the current administration has weighted on the minds of um, students considering to study abroad. And I think that this reflects a lack of um, understanding of the traditional role that higher education uh, has played in expanding American influence and in promoting good relationship with other nations. On a broader level with the Arab world, this travel ban uh, targeting mainly Muslim countries I think has already contributed to damage the work uh, already started by Obama and aiming at restoring trust and respect uh, between the US and the Arab world, as it was exemplified um, in his Cairo speech back to back in 2009, I think. So I'm just going to jump in with a question. So your research, as I understand it, is sort of looks at how the executive in the EU and the US and civil society in the, in the EU and the US and what was the other one, the legislature? Yeah. In the US sort of deal with each other and, and, and make agreements, correct? Yeah. So you have this really interesting situation where all of those groups may be negotiating to a certain end, but then the President of the United States tweets something that says, this deal that we're doing with Europe is terrible. Sad. Or, or it's sad. <laughs> how would one of those negotiators, how do they react? To it? How, how, how can you negotiate? Can you have a position of trust and good faith when you might be undermined by the President? Excellent question. Um, I can relate, uh, I can answer this um, by focusing specifically on the, on the executive dialogues, namely on the dialogues between uh, representatives from the um, State Department and uh, European diplomats from the European External Action Service. Well, in this regard, um, the architecture of dialogues between these two institutions is just huge. Uh, there are more than 40 dialogues covering um, political and sectoral issues ranging from non-proliferation to counterterrorism, human rights, um, non-proliferation. And here the channels of um, cooperation have well been established, they are institutionalized. And um, from my recent conversations with uh, the participants of these dialogues, I understood that it was business as usual for now. Um, they are still talking on a, da- on a daily basis uh, to each other, cooperating uh, on a um, daily basis. And uh, until the clear instruction is given um, to reduce the amount of talking, then they will continue uh, the cooperation. So I think that there are a lot of things going on. Uh, that are not on the Twitter feed of Donald Trump, but that are still uh, very important. And so at the working level, the relations are strong um, and um, there is really a willingness to foster this intense uh, and valuable relationship. Another point I found quite interesting that Kapsha mentioned is that 
you didn't see much more collaboration between Trump and Putin on anything else but Syria. Um, that seemed to kind of surprise me. That took me back. Well, I think that the um, relations with Russia are much more problematic than what he seems to think. And really, I would like to reinforce the problematic aspect of these uh, ties between Trump and Putin, particularly in light of the gross violations of international law committed by Russia. You know, traditionally, the U.S. has been the rule maker and guardian uh, of the liberal Western order. And as a great power, it also has the responsibility to ensure that these rules are respected by the other players in the system. But in the current situation, it looks like the Trump administration could take a soft uh, stance on these issues. Um, so, for example, when it comes to the violation of the territorial integrity of Ukraine, which is really the sacrosanct principle of the Westphalian order, um, the Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson, had first expressed doubts about uh, the wisdom of the sanctions against Russia as they could potentially harm U.S. businesses. Or similarly, his recent decision to skip his first meeting with the 28th NATO allies in April and travel to Russia later on um, fits this perception that the U.S. is giving Moscow priority over the NATO allies. And the risk here is having an administration that not only backs away from the international base for order, but also dismantles it um, by doing such um, things. Well, that's it for this episode of The Ballpark. Thank you to Charles Kupchin and Emmanuel Blanc. The Ballpark is produced by Denise Barron with contributions from co-hosts Chris Gilson and Sophie Dunselman. That's me. And also with help from the LSE's annual fund. Our theme tune is by Ranger and the Rearrangers, a Seattle-based gypsy jazz band. Look them up at rangerswings.com. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the U.S. Center or the London School of Economics. Next month at the ballpark, we're taking a look at the changing identity of American conservatism. And I think that this period is going to be a time when Republicans fight over what it means to be the Republican Party, whether it's still a conservative party, as I hope it will be, or whether it's becoming something more like uh, a kind of Trumpian populist party, uh, which would be something new in American politics. Thanks for listening. 